following message is from Narrative Church, a Lutheran church located in Williamson County, Texas. For more information, go to www.narrative.church. Let's dive into Scripture together. If you have an app, if you've got a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 9 which is where we are today. Is that right? Are we in eight? So here's the deal. Every week, right now, I am reading ahead to make the Wednesday devotionals for our Mark reading plan. And every week, I'm then preaching backwards a chapter. So all these chapters are blending together for me, as is good with Scripture. But here we are. Mark 8 is where you want to be this morning. We're specifically going to be looking at these verses 27 through 38. Now, what I want you to think about is when was the last time you said something stupid? And extroverts, I mean like big stupid, right? You're saying something stupid every day. But like, let's think big stupid, right? And how do I think big stupid? The way I think, I've gotten in trouble several times for using the word stupid in sermons. (laughs) It just happened last week on a podcast I was on, a buddy called me and said, my godson, he goes, so Porter heard you use the S word. (laughs) But here we are. But for me, I think, when did I say something big that really got me in trouble? And it's that moment where it comes out of your mouth and you just want to lasso it back in, right? Like it's out there and you go, oh no. Like, I just push it back in, right? But think about that time where you just said something and introverts struggle with it, figure it out, you know. I know you're all planning deeply everything you say, which just shatters my brain capacity because if it's here, it's there for me. I mean, sometimes it's there before it's here. But think about that. And I want you to sit in that feeling, right? Because welcome to Narrative Church where I'm going to make you remember the anxiety and frustration of saying something foolish, But I want you to hold on to that because we've all done it, right? We've all taken our foot and implanted it in our mouth. For me, what happens is not only does the foot go in the mouth, I need a surgeon to remove it because I get going and next thing you know, I have said something. I didn't really mean to say it that way. In my brain, I thought about it differently, but my mouth works independent of my brain sometimes. And so I will say a word, I will say a phrase, and I watch someone's face fall, and I go, oh no, that's not at all what I meant. I don't don't even remember what I said. It was two seconds ago. Today in our story, we have this moment with Peter where he is high flying, which is awesome because we get this example of Peter when he just... Like, if there's Jesus asks a question, Peter is like knocking hands down. Like, I'm going to answer it, right? And so we get that moment where he answers a question today, and Jesus goes, yes. And then like a minute later, Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. Which, just feel the difference in yes and get behind me, Satan. Two very different fields to them, right? But I think there's this moment for us as we chew on this story to really learn and say, okay, let's, let's see the context. Let's see what's going on in Scripture. But also we can say, I can connect with that. 
I can connect with how that feels and what it means for my Christian walk. So let's look here at some story background. So verses 27 and 28 give us a quick insight into what's going on. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I, or who do they, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So I want to pull those two verses apart real quick. So the first one, let's just get some background. So Caesarea Philippi is the villages around Caesarea Philippi is where they are. So Caesarea Philippi is a, a town um, north of the Sea of Galilee, where they have been, where I've shown you some maps lately. So it's north of there. But an interesting idea, Caesarea Philippi actually was known as um, Peneus before this. So to understand a lot of like what's going on in Jesus' day is you have the Israelite empire that rules, right, from Saul and David and Solomon, those guys, it rules for quite a long time. But if you think about the Mediterranean, if any army wants to move from Greece or Turkey or Asia Minor down to go fight in northern Africa, where do they have to go? They have to go through Israel. Because outside Israel is either ocean or desert. So if you, you are moving goods or people over land... You're going through there. And we know the punishments that come to the people of God as they stray. We know that what that invites is invasion. And so you have the Babylonians, the Assyrians, they come in and take over. But what has just happened in recent history at this point is the Greeks. So Alexander the Great, as he conquers the known world... He comes through and he takes their lands. Now, when he does that, everything, they call it the Hellenization of Israel. Everything becomes Greek. So as the Greeks come through, they want everyone speaking their language, writing their language, so that in the empire there is one used tongue. So that's when we translate the Bible, we go back to what's called Koine Greek the New Testament, I should say. So Koine Greek was the written language at the time because of the Hellenization. So when Alexander the Great comes through, this area, Peneus, becomes, well, it is Peneus, but it's, there, there's a spring there in the midst of the wilderness. And so they call it Peneus dedicated to the god Pan because Pan is the god of desolate places. But they have found this spring. Now, when the Romans come in and take over, they set up a um, proxy government, right? So they come in, they wipe out the Greeks, they take all the Greeks' land, and when they come through Israel, the way the Romans ruled was they came in and would either put their own governor in place, or what's happening in Israel is they have a military governor of the legions occupying, but then they put up... Herod the Great as king over the area. Now Herod's son is Philip the Tetrarch. And you guys were all like, yes, history. That's why I came to church today. I wanted it. Thank you. 
I love talking about history. So Philip the Tetrarch comes in. Well, he gets to name things, right? Because now he's in charge. So Peneus becomes Caesarea Philippi. Now Philippi after himself because of course. But Caesarea because he's honoring Rome. And the designator Philippi is actually very important because there's also a Caesarea on the coast, which is the main port for the Romans at that time. And actually for me, as I was prepping this week, I was like, wait, Caesarea Philippi's up here, but it's, I thought it was on the coast, because I remember my mom, when they would go over to Israel, she always talked about how interesting Caesarea was in the port and the ruins there. And so I was blown away when I typed in Caesarea Philippi into my old Google machine, and up pops this picture of a stream in the desert. But that's what it was. There was this history around that place. And not only that, there is grottos built to pan in that area. So as Jesus is walking with his disciples around Caesarea Philippi, in a place where the Greeks and the Romans and even now their own rulers have set up kind of this worship that Herod the Great even built a memorial to Caesar in the area, which he wasn't supposed to do. But so Jesus is walking around here in a place where there would be this kind of other godly worship. This place that even as the Israelites were a people under the thumb of Rome, they still got to hold on to a lot of their religion and culture. Caesarea Philippi would have been a little different. So as he walks with his disciples, he looks and says, who do the people say that I am? And this is, this is a rhetorical thing. He's building into something here. So he looks at them, who do the people say that I am? John the Baptist. Which is just comedy because, like, they knew John the Baptist. Like, it wasn't like, you know, that they were separate by decades and it was a return. But it was like, you know, Jesus and John the Baptist had been in the same place at the same time. This isn't like, you know, is Bruce Wayne Batman? Well, I don't know. I've never seen Bruce Wayne and Batman in the same place at the same time. Spoiler alert. But this is this moment that's just weird that people, like some say John the Baptist, like he just died. Like we were, both, we were all there, but okay. Well, then some say Elijah. So this, this holds a little bit more um, water for me because some say Elijah is they were waiting for Elijah to return. There's always a seat saved for Elijah at special festivals because when Elijah returns, he heralds the way that you have the, the biblical, um, a voice calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. So Elijah connects with that idea. So, okay, that makes sense. And then, and then the real lazy people, I ah, a prophet. But so he asks, who do the people say that I am? And you get these answers. And it's interesting because even John the Baptist, all of these answers are people who have done great things. So even the people are recognizing that Jesus is doing great things. But then he looks at them and he says, and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And again, this is Peter. Just put your hands down. I got it, right? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
So this is the moment where Peter confesses who Jesus is. Peter would have known what he was saying. This wasn't like a one-off Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter from the back seat goes, oh, yeah, you're the Christ. And like, you know, you keep going. This was a big deal because Peter's confession is saying that Messiah we've been waiting for, that Messiah that all of Scripture is about, that sent one of God, that's you. That Peter has now enough seen and heard what God has done that he goes, you are the Christ. And in fact, in other Gospels, when he says this, Jesus will look at him and say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now this is interesting because a lot of times that is interpreted as Peter is the rock, but it's actually kind of Jesus being like telling a joke because Petros is a little pebble. But when he says on this rock, he's talking about major boulder, right? So he's saying, hey, even though you're Petros, you're that small rock, that confession you just gave, I'm going to build on that. So this confession, you are the Christ, is the foundation of the church. And in that other gospel, he'll also go on to say, it is my Father who has given you that answer, which gives us this great theological moment of saying, when we confess Christ, it's not of our own doing, it is the Holy Spirit working inside of us, that proof that we are never alone. And so here, Peter, through the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Father, says, you are the Christ. And again, Peter knows what he's saying. When the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, this is one of the things they want him to say. Because this, they can bring him up on charges. So when Peter says it, it's a big deal. And he charges them to tell no one. He does this a lot in the book of Mark. Because his time has not yet come. So as he does this, we get this confession, we get this brilliant moment, and then Jesus looks at them, and he begins telling what he must do, and he said to them plainly, oh, I'm sorry, who do you say that I am? And he strictly charged them to tell them nothing, and so then in 31, he starts telling them that he must suffer and die, and 32 says, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, with this great moment in the Spirit, giving the confession, and the next moment going, I hear you, Lord, but... Right, think about what he's just done. He has confessed, physically in front of him stands the Messiah, the one they've waited forever for. And then the Messiah starts saying things he doesn't like about suffering and dying and rising again. And Peter goes, great, I know who you are, but me, human Peter, you said I'm the rock, so here we go. And he goes, let's not do that. What if instead of those things, we did not do those things? Right, let's not suffer bad news. Dying, no good. That resurrection thing, let's keep that in there. And he begins rebuking what Jesus has said because he doesn't like it. Because his idea of the Messiah is that the Messiah is going to come and everything's going to be great. And it's fascinating because here in this moment, he is reflecting the culture 
cultural religion around him that would say Jesus has come or when the Messiah comes, he will come as a great leader. He will come as a general and a politician. And he will trounce the Romans and destroy them and then we will have freedom to be who we're meant to be. We sing a song around Christmas called Baby Son. And I love, there are a couple lines in there. And it says, without a sword and no armored guard, but common born in his mother's arms. You see, what Peter was seeing and what he was looking for was a Messiah who would come to destroy enemies and bring him comfort so he could be comfortable and that everything would be okay. Earthly okay. And so he rebukes Jesus And Jesus says this, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's interesting that Peter rebukes him at the point where he he talks about it plainly. Right? He's been talking in parables and having to pull them over to the side and going, All right, let's slow this down. What does this mean? But here he speaks plainly. This is what it's going to be like. I'm going to have to suffer and die and rise again. Peter immediately catches on and says, I don't want any of that. And Jesus, without missing a breath, knows where that is coming from. Without missing a moment, he knows where this lie from Peter is coming from. And so he turns and says, get behind me, Satan. We'll see a reflection of this even in the garden. We'll see a reflection of this at Gethsemane where he will look and he will say, Jesus, as he gets ready to go to the cross, says, Lord, take this cup from me. Take this suffering. Take all of this, but not my will, but yours be done. And so he does this thing, and so he knows who's attacking him, who is getting him to try and not be who he is. And so then Peter has said something stupid, and then Jesus does something great. He calls everyone over, right? So he goes, get behind me, Satan. And then it says, and he called the crowds back to him. So can you imagine, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Oh, by the way, we're putting this on display, Peter. Get ready. So he calls the crowds to him. And he says, listen, you want to follow me? You must take up your cross daily. And die. He says it like this. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So he's telling Peter, Listen, I know you wanted this thing, but this is what it's like. You're going to have to give up and suffer and pick up your cross and follow me. But we get this brilliant idea as we look at this story of what it means for our life. Every week we come together and we confess the Apostles' Creed. We sing songs about Jesus and who he is. That's another confession. 
we confess our sins, but then we also receive absolution, which is another confession of who Jesus is. And we know scripture says no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is in and amongst us, and yet at the same time, how many of us hear the words, take up your cross and follow me, and think, how about next week? This week is booked. Lord, I hear you saying, take up your cross, but again, what if we didn't do that? What if we took up our chips and salsa? That feels a lot more fun to me. But Jesus calls us and says, listen, if you're going to confess, I'm going to call you to follow. That if you're going to confess that Jesus is Lord, there's more to it. Now, let's not put them two together, right? The confession is separate from the following. The following comes after the confession. It says, if you're going to confess this, then this is what's going to happen. But notice that when Peter confesses and then doesn't follow, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, but he doesn't say, see you later, Peter. Right? Like, on this rock? Ah, no, not anymore. And this isn't the last time Peter does this. Peter will spend time denying Jesus as he gets ready to die. He will stand in front of a group of people and three times say, I never knew him. And guess what? That's not the end. When Jesus dies, rises again, Peter rejoices. The Lord goes to heaven. Peter goes out to take the gospel to different places. And guess what? Paul calls him out. Can you imagine the audacity of Paul? Like that dude was going around killing Christians. And then Jesus changes him, and he calls out Peter. If I were Peter, I'd be like, check yourself before you wreck yourself, Paul. But he gets called out because Peter keeps struggling to follow. That in that moment, he starts following the ways of man because he's scared what people will think of him. In the book of Acts, he comes in and around the Jewish people and starts leaving behind the Gentiles because he's afraid. So it won't be the last time Peter messes up, and I love that because that's me. Because I come here on Sunday mornings, and I confess with you, alongside you, about who Jesus is and what he's done. And guarantee you by the end of the day I have not followed him. But the joy that we have is that even as Jesus says, this is the confession. The Lord has given that to you. That when he says, get behind me, Satan, he's not saying goodbye, he's saying, get rid of it. Now pick up your cross and follow me. That this story isn't about the abandonment of Peter. It's about Peter being a fool and Jesus still being his savior. That picking up our cross, and he says it like this. If anyone would come after himself, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. It's about denying self and following Jesus. And together we do that. We confess who he is, and then we seek to follow him. We learn that that confession becomes our power for following him. I don't know what it is in your lives, but I guess you do, where Jesus is calling you to deny yourself and pick up a cross. And here's the good news. You're not alone. 
the Christ is with you. The Messiah walks beside you. Jesus is there for you. So we confess over and over who he is. And we follow, and when we fail in our following, we trust in the confession that he will forgive. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you thanks this morning that we can be here, that we can follow you. Lord, when we fall behind, when we fail, we ask that you would watch over us. Lord, that even when our confession falls apart, you would bring us back to following you. In your son Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.